0: Okay, Jesse, the mistaken identity murder in our last show was very tragic. What's the story this time? When megastar, Paralympian
1: and Olympian, and national treasure, Oscar Pistorius partners with a gorgeous model and aspiring attorney named Riva Steenkamp. They instantly become South Africa's golden couple. When a fatal tragedy occurs only three months into their relationship, the authorities are forced to determine whether it is a horrible, senseless mistake or intentional murder. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jessie. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about accidents, intentions, and love gone fatally wrong.
0: You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: If you are enjoying this show, please love murder a
0: five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, we have an
1: all-star squad, so I'm really excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons.
0: Joshua P., Annie D., and Marilyn P., Ashley V.A., Michelle W., and Cheryl M., Zachary B., Faith S., and Brianna T., Pippa A., Michelle T., and Michelle K., Kai B., Robin F. and Nathan R. And last but definitely not
1: least, Christina F. It's really nice to see some dudes up in there, huh? Oh, yeah. A diverse audience. (laughs) (laughs) Another awesome group of patrons. Uh, We cannot thank you enough for all of your support, each and every one of you. Well, Andy, I think we should just jump right into it. Unless you have anything you would like to roll into? Nope. Let's go. Let's do it. When gorgeous Riva Steenkamp and heroic Oscar Pistorius made their debut as a couple in November of 2012, they instantly became a beloved celebrity couple in their country of South Africa. Oscar had for years been a tabloid staple. He was a determined and accomplished bilateral amputee who had represented the country in both the Paralympics and Olympic Games. Oscar worked with many charities and inspired those with physical challenges around the globe. It didn't hurt that he happened to have model good looks to boot. Reva Steenkamp was obviously striking. At 29, she had already been a working model for years, gracing magazine covers and being voted one of FHM magazine's sexiest women in the world. What many didn't realize was that Reva was so much more than just a pretty face. She was also highly educated and was planning to use her law degree so that she could help end gender-based violence in South Africa. Wow. She had also overcome incredible adversity and had become an advocate for the voiceless. The pride of the nation would soon become the horror, then confusion, and then outrage of a nation only three and a half months into this golden couple's relationship. On Valentine's Day in 2013, just after three in the morning, four bullets would ring out into the night, ending a life far too soon. The police, the court system, and the public would all have opinions on whether what happened was a tragic accident or cold-blooded murder. The surrounding conversation would include themes of domestic violence, racism, misogyny, the patriarchy, hero worship, and mental illness. An adoring public would also have to reckon with how well we really know the interior lives of those we put on a pedestal. Yes, so this is a pretty heavy episode. I am sure the vast majority of you guys are very familiar with this case, There has been some developing news, which came out a couple weeks ago, which is why this was top of mind for me. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about covering it as a current affairs, but I had a book and I ended up reading a couple books for this and it definitely warranted its own full episode, especially as I believe we've had quite a few requests for this one as well. So like I said, I did use a very large range of sources. People have very strong feelings about this case and they go into their research materials, it seems, with already kind of having an idea of what happened, it seemed like to me. So there were things I read that were like definitely like trying to paint a picture one way and then there's the opposite way. I read two different books. I watched a show and I also listened to a long-form podcast about it just to kind of soak up all the differing opinions. And as we go through, I'll give you guys the references because sometimes when I give my sources right away, it can kind of spoil the story if you're not familiar with it. So I'll definitely be sharing the titles as we work through the story. And also you can always go to the show notes where I have everything written down there. We will be talking about a lot of issues that come up in this episode. So Trigger warnings for sexual assault, gender-based violence, sexual trafficking, race relations. A lot of stuff going on because we're talking about South Africa and that makes sense. So without further ado, let's go back and talk about two brilliantly beautiful children born into different circumstances. And we will start with baby Riva. Reva Rebecca Steenkamp was born on August 19th, 1983 in Cape Town, South Africa to parents June and Barry. Reva's parents had both been married before. And as a result, she had a much older half brother and a much older half sister. Her half sister, Simone, I think was like 18 years old when she was born. Wow. Yeah. Barry and June really did have A kind of fairy tale-ish head spinning romance. I mean, this I think might be, I say this every time, but this one might be really the love murder record. Reva's parents got engaged five days after their first date and they got married five days later. So that is 10 days from your first date. From ever meeting. From ever meeting. Yeah, that's intense. They might've like met through mutual friends, I think, or something like that. And then they had their first date. So it was like It might not have been the day they met because this isn't like we're not in the internet dating era here. We're in the 80s. (laughs) because Now, like your first date is like probably when you're first meeting. (laughs) Yeah. But like back then, it wasn't always that it was the first time you met. It was just the first time you had the intention of going on a date together. But still, that's pretty wild. 10 days from first date, already married. Though they did separate for a little while during Reva's teen years, the couple did eventually reunite. And actually, that was thanks to Reva. And they spent the rest of their lives together until Barry's death last year at the age of 80. Hmm. Reva's early years have been described differently in the media. It sounds like they just never had a lot of money. So some people described her as like somewhat impoverished, but I read June Steenkamp's book, Reva, A Mother's Story. And while they certainly did not seem to have much money, they did have a lot of love. And in some ways, Reva actually had somewhat of a charmed childhood insofar as she had two loving parents. They lived in a small cottage. They had like a little farm. So some parts of it were very picturesque, pastoral. So Barry, her father, was a former jockey and he was a horse trainer who trained horses for other people and basically ran a stable, essentially. Well, June did a series of odd jobs. And one of the things that she did was keep shop. There was like a little shop near the racetrack where Barry worked as well. And like Reva started working there when she was really little too. So they were together quite a bit. And one of the reasons why they had a hard time with money was because June said a lot of times these people who owned horses that they were training and keeping for them would just not pay them. All these rich people. All these rich people would just stop paying them and they'd be like, oh, sorry, we can't pay you for all of the work you've been doing and all of the food you've been feeding our horse and everything. And she was like, well, what do you do with that when they say that? Because you're not going to like throw a horse out on the street. Yeah, no, that's really messed up. You're just out all the money. And so that's why I think that they struggled to make ends meet throughout Reva's childhood. According to her parents, Reva was an uncommonly mature and bright child who had a tendency to parent her parents especially after their separation in her early teens. So she was definitely the type of person that would come into the house and like clean everything and go through the fridge and make sure all the food was up to date. And she started doing that as early as 12 and 13 years old. Riva was a bright and empathetic child who grew into a strong-willed, smart, and stunningly beautiful woman. She was particularly interested in growing up to be a lawyer and advocate for women in her country due to an alarming amount of gender-based violence that afflicts South Africa. At 14 years old, and honestly, likely earlier, Reva was forced to reckon with what life was like for many of the girls and women in her country, especially for the young Black women and girls. Reva was white, as was Oscar. It's worth noting. But Reva was friends and peers with many across the racial and socioeconomic spectrum. Her mother, June, recounted a story in her book about a 14-year-old Reva going to June, her mother, deeply upset because a friend of hers, another fourteen-year-old girl, was being sold to an old man, basically like a kind of like a child marriage situation. (sighs) June wrote, "Quote: When the girls were fourteen, Riva confided to me that this girl was crying because she wanted to go to school like Riva, but her mother was being forced to sell her for seven thousand rand, the equivalent of three hundred sixty-eight dollars American." to an old man. It was sickening. This poor black girl cried and cried and said she wanted to go to school like Reva, and that broke Riva's heart. June went on to write, this tale is deeply shocking, and I can't apologize for making it sound like an everyday occurrence because there were always stories of people treating their daughters as a possession that they could make money from. When you're the mother of a daughter that age yourself, you feel the outrage very deeply. Reva and I heard it all. So this is where like the trigger warning for all of that stuff at the beginning I said comes in. And this is still what June Steenkamp is writing. A father locking a girl in a room and letting a series of men rape her for money. Mothers who were forced to take their young girls to walk the railway line, a well-known area for sex workers. Reva took all of that on board. All of these young girls whose childhood had been brought to an end abruptly and sordidly who are used by their own parents as a means to get money. June did go on to say that the 14-year-old girl referenced in this story is now okay. She wrote, quote, she went through all that, but then she met and married someone who cares for her and looks after her. And then she writes, dot, 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 but that
0: was later. Yeah, not when she's 14. That's the saddest thing is that she wanted to just stay in school and learn.
1: Yes, I mean, what's really sad is that When she says like that, dot, 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 but that's later, it's like, what happened in those intervening years? Yeah. There's more to a story than just a happy ending, or in this case, an okay ending. Yeah, exactly. There's everything that happened in between, which lives with her forever. Exactly. So, one of Reva's high school teachers also went on record to speak to her natural ability to connect with others across racial or cultural divides. This was her teacher in the Osa language. It's the one of the official languages of South Africa that is characterized by its click consonants. So it's spelled X-H-O-S-A, but I did read that the X is pronounced like a click. So it's like click Osa, Osa. So forgive my horrific pronunciation, very likely. In any case, this is what the teacher had to say about Riva. For some people, it is a new thing, learning to work in this diverse world of cultures. But that child knew how to do it instinctively. She was so clever. She never saw color in a person. All of our students had to do three languages, English, Osa, Afrikaans. But that child never differentiated. She fitted in every group. That fascinated me. She never made a fuss or showed an awareness of color or wondered why I, her Osa teacher, could be a class teacher in the same way that some of the other children did. She worked with people across color, Indian girls, colored girls, black girls. She was prepared for our new modern world when she was very young. Wow. Yes. Unsurprisingly, Riva was very popular amongst her peers and succeeded academically. And I think that also, all of this talking about her world is just a very important context to look at an idea of Riva's reality, which was really just more of an awareness of the reality of other girls and women around her. And it's not to say that white girls and women do not suffer in South Africa because they absolutely do as well. But disproportionately, black girls and women are affected by this types of violence more often. Reva knew all this growing up. And this is basically where she kind of gets her origin story as far as having a desire to really put into practice this Rainbow Nation, this idea of Nelson Mandela's Rainbow Nation and wanting to be a part of it, wanting to be an ally and a helper and somebody that shows the very best parts of what South Africa is and can be. So she did great at school. She became the first person in her entire family to go to university when she went to Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University to study law. And alongside her studies, which I think started actually in high school, Reva began to model. She's very, very stunning. And at first, it was more like one of those things where she did it to make a little bit of money because her family never had a ton of money. So it was something to pay the bills. And because like a lot of people, even her OSA teacher was one of the people that was like, she was so stunning that it was pretty clear that she should do this on the side because she could clearly make a lot of money. Yeah. If you've got it, do it. Yeah. But then following a life-changing event, Reva had a realization about modeling. In her last year of law school, she fell off a horse and broke her back. Oh, my God. Yes. So Reva spent months in the hospital and was told that she may never walk again. She endured surgeries and infections. She apparently got shingles and different infections from being in the bed for so long. She had to endure grueling physical therapy sessions, but she did learn to walk again and was able to practice yoga and be generally active. That experience made Riva realize that life was short. And if she was going to really make a run at being a model, which at 22, you're kind of on the older side of starting a real modeling career. Yeah. She realized that she was going to have to actually try to do it. So she wanted to graduate from school with her law certificate first, obviously, but then she was going to move to Johannesburg, which is the epicenter of modeling. It's like the big city in South Africa. And this was really because she realized that she could do good works as an attorney, obviously, but with a greater platform, if she became a well-known model or celebrity, and then also became an attorney. She would have the greatest platform in which to affect change. Soon after arriving in Johannesburg, she became the face of some big national campaigns for Toyota. There was various clothing companies and some Italian clothing companies that I wasn't familiar with. She also got magazine covers for everything from parenting magazines to FHM. I, FHM South Africa really liked her, which is. Considered a lads magazine. It's like a men's magazine. And she just was gorgeous. She's posing in a bikini. She has a lovely body. She eventually became a TV presenter and landed also a celebrity reality television show as well. Wow. She did it. She's doing it. And her mom said that she was very matter-of-fact about modeling, about, like, how to become a model, what she needed to do. She never complained about anything. She has naturally dark hair. One of her friends said when they started law school together that she reminded her of Liv Tyler because she has blue eyes, naturally dark hair and a naturally like pouty mouth. But she realized that she was getting more work when she dyed her hair blonde, which is so crazy to me because it's kind of like you. She looks like a totally natural blonde. Like when you're blonde, you look like a natural blonde. Yeah. But you have naturally dark hair. She was the same type of way. So she's like in all of her most famous pictures, she's blonde, like she's real blonde. So it's easy to forget that she was actually naturally dark haired. Wow. That's what her mom said. Her mom said like she was willing to do it. She was only 5'7". So when she first started modeling, they were telling her like, well, you're 22 and you're 5'7". So yeah, this is limiting the shoots and everything like runway that we can send you on. But she was a very good, I think it's called print model, right, Andy, when you're just like great on magazine covers and in like different types of adverts for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, which you can have a really healthy living just doing that.
1: Exactly. And I think that's really was her bread and butter because she just had a beautiful figure and a beautiful face. And you don't become a TV presenter unless you have obviously a good personality and charisma and can carry that off. Riva also qualified as a paralegal and began speaking out about injustices. She became the face of Spirit Day in South Africa, which is an annual LGBTQ awareness day to prevent bullying related suicides. She was like the face of South Africa's Spirit Day. That's so great. She often tweeted about gender based violence and sexual assault during the time that Riva was most active on social media, South Africa was considered the rape central of the world by Interpol.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So some statistics vary, but looking at like the early 2010s, there were reports from women's groups that women were raped every 30 seconds. I read a book by author John Carlin called Chase Your Shadow. And he said, conservatively, a woman was raped every four minutes and killed every eight minutes, usually by a romantic partner at this time in South Africa. And it's important to note too, that around the age of 22, which I think was the same year she ended up getting into that horse accident, Reva and her mother also survived a home invasion, which is what actually got her parents back together. It's I do recommend June Hamp's book, Reva, Mother's Story, because she really puts a lot of emphasis on what the world in which Reva grew up in was like and what Reva was like, obviously. But she said that they were still separated. they had never divorced, June and Barry, but they were living separate lives and they weren't even really like dating people. It was just like one of those things like they got together so fast that they found that there were some parts of their life that were incompatible as far as living. So they were living apart and. I think that either it was right before she got into the accident or she was recovering and about to move to Johannesburg. In any case, she said that there had been home invasions in June's neighborhood. And it was really scary. People coming in and robbing their home and hurting people or keeping them at gunpoint while they stole everything. And June mentioned something to Reva, who insisted on coming over. And joining this meeting because there was a meeting going on in the neighborhood about what they could do in the gated community to protect a community from that sort of violence and invasion. And Reva insisted on coming because she wanted to hear what the solutions were and to help and to help her mom, obviously, which is also just such a you thing to do. <laughs> I just can imagine you being like, "I know I'm coming. I have to be part of this meeting, even though you weren't living there." And it had so. It was on that day that they were in June's house when June's house started getting broken into. And essentially, there was a guy with a machete who managed to break through the lock and get through the outer gates and then break down the door. And it was Riva who ran and got because her mom was still trying to, like, call the police and, like, bar the guy from entering, even though he has a machete who's breaking the door down. and. Reva ran out and she was like, No, mom, like, come and like grabbed her and like brought her into the room and locked the door. But June said at that moment she was terrified because Reva's clearly gorgeous. I mean, it doesn't matter what you look like when it comes to rape. So that's not important. But still, she was like, I'm just so worried about my daughter. She didn't care what happened to her, but she saw how easily they broke down like the gate and the door. And so how easily they could just break down the door that they were standing behind. And she had kind of antagonized the guy being like, because he wasn't wearing a mask. She's like, I remember your face or something. And so she was scared, witless, but luckily they left without hurting the women. But essentially at that point, Reva said, you're you're not doing this anymore. You're not living alone. I'm taking you to dad's right now and you two are just getting back together. And they did. (laughs) It's like a very violent parent trap right here. But she said, thank God she did because she came back to get some of her stuff later on. And the man who had broken into their house had come back and had taken more things from the house and had left, I think, the machete with like a note or something that was like, I'm going to find you, essentially. Like, if she had been home, he would have killed her. So scary. Yeah. So there is a lot of crime going on. Definitely at this time, I have read that. It has gotten better, and that very slowly, especially the gender-based violence and, and the rapes and the assaults are seemingly improving. But this was a very difficult time. And Reva was a very brave young woman who really did want to make a big difference in her life, in a lot of people's lives, if she could. So by the time she turned 29 in August of 2012, Reva was fairly well known in South Africa. So obviously she had been on magazine covers she had at that point shot her reality show which was kind of like it sounded like a celebrity survivor-esque thing okay it was like something like tropica island or i think that's what it was called but i don't think it had aired yet at that point she had had two long-term relationships her mom said that she really was like only ever with two guys her entire life And those were men she was in relationships with for about five to six years. And then her earliest public relationship was one with a famous rugby player. But her mom said that was like more like they went out on a few dates. It just happened to be publicized because he was famous and she was a beautiful model. It didn't seem like there was a real relationship there. And then on November 4th, 2012, Reva was set up on a date with the world-famous Olympian and Paralympian, Oscar Pistorius. turns out that Oscar had come across Reva somehow. I don't know if it was her FHM cover, if it was her work as a TV presenter, whatever it was, he was aware of who she was and thought she was beautiful. And it turned out that they had some mutual friends. So he was able to get an intro to her through their mutual friends and they were set up on a lunch date. And it was at that lunch date that they were hitting it off. And he was like, oh, I have to go to this event tonight. Like, do you want to be my date? And it was very last minute. And she was like, sure, why not? And they went to that event that night and all of a sudden, boom, like they're a couple. She wasn't somebody who really followed sports, so she didn't know that much about Oscar Pistorius, but she was aware of who he was. And it was like overnight, she went from like not even knowing Oscar to the whole country thinking she was dating him because it was a public event and there was a red carpet and the whole thing. It escalated very quickly. So pretty much immediately before the two of them had really thought through what their relationship was, they were already considered a new celebrity couple. So let's talk about Oscar Pistorius and his extraordinary will to not just overcome the odds, but to succeed. If the time you're spending cooking these days only for your kid to reject the meal feels criminal at this point, if this seems personal, it's because it is, (laughs) listen up because your new year is about to get a major upgrade. You need to try Little Spoon. Little Spoon delivers fresh, healthy meals and snacks that your kiddo will love for every
0: eating stage. Little Spoon is a one-stop shop for healthy, easy mealtime and snack time for your baby, toddler, and big kid delivered right to your door. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime, time-saving, and convenient without compromise. Little Spoon delivers baby blends, which are fresh organic baby food from
1: single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids, as well as biteables, transition to table early finger food meals that are cut to size for
0: easy self-feeding and are healthy balanced and free of artificial junk. Plates, toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. Smoothies. Healthy snack time with organic smoothies in the form of convenient pouches made with amazing flavors like strawberry banana shake and purple carrot acai bowl. There's also lunchers. A fresh take on an old school classic.
1: These build-it-yourself lunches like Easy Cheesy Pizza and Chicken Dunkers are protein packed and made with hidden veggies as well as snacks, a wide variety of junk-free, better-for-you
0: alternatives to your kiddos' favorite snacks. I'm obviously obsessed with this because it's all vegan and so easy to prepare. It's been amazing.
1: Yes, absolutely amazing. And honestly, the little smoothies and the plates have saved my life more than once. And I wasn't kidding about the beginning of this being personal. I went out of my way to make a really big meal for the family the there today, And Gus would not eat any of it, like any of it. But he loves the smoothies. So I could get him one of the green smoothies. And I could feel pretty good knowing that he got some good veggies and he got some good protein and he was going to be fine, even though he refused to eat any of the food I made him.
0: Yeah, it can be so frustrating. And I know we already mentioned this, but it comes right to your door. So flexible, so easy, everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. I pick the menu and change up what I order every time. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, I love it, Echo loves it, the grandparents love it, it's a huge win-win for my family and it can be for yours too. Simplify your kiddo's mealtime
1: with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com lovemurder and enter our code lovemurder at checkout to get 30% off your
0: first Little Spoon order. Jesse, life doesn't happen bi weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app
1: that gives you access to your pay as you work up to $100 per day or up to
0: $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. Andy, there have been
1: so many times over the last couple of months that I've thought about where earning would be so useful. Take, for example, an unexpected expense at the vet because your pup had to stay overnight after complications from a simple procedure, which really did happen to me.
0: Yep. Or think about how every season brings with it the need for new clothes for kids heading to school or them just growing so fast and growing out of all the clothes (laughs) (laughs) or in your case right now, which is them romping around in the snow.
1: Entirely. I'm kind of like packing them into two small snowsuits right now. (laughs) And that's to say nothing of all of the other little life things, a special night out, a gift for a loved one, whatever it might be, that do not care at all when
0: you get paid. As we always say, Earning is just a product that makes sense for so many people. Make Earning a part of your financial routine and join Earnings over
1: three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earning, I think about financial stability and
0: security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earning today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earning app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max and pay period max. See
1: earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Oscar was born on November 22nd, 1986 with a rare condition called fibular hemomelia. As a result, he was born with a missing fibula bone on each leg, half formed ankles, and like basically a half foot. He had two toes rather than five on each foot. Okay. As a result, he would never be able to stand or walk on his given born legs. So Oscar's parents were told that they had to make a decision. Essentially, there were ways that through multiple, multiple surgeries throughout his life, they could try to extend the bones or create feet for him in a way that He could walk, but it wasn't perfect. And it would likely lead to a lifetime of surgery and pain with potentially not great outcome. Yep. He would be basically having the mobility of a very old person from birth, essentially, from like childhood. And so they did meet with one doctor who said this sounds extreme because everyone's talking about how to save his legs. I think you should just amputate from below the knee because he will have a better chance of having a normal life and a relatively pain-free life having prosthetic legs. And so I can only imagine how difficult this decision would be for parents of a baby, not knowing what decision was going to be the best for him and being forced to make a decision because they needed to make a decision soon. So at 11 months old, Oscar's legs were amputated just below the knee. I could not imagine. No. And they were completely 100% right. That was 100% the right call. Oscar and his parents were both very grateful that they took the counsel of the doctor that suggested that because instead of living with a lot of surgeries and near constant pain, Instead, Oscar became a world-famous athlete. So Oscar was born into a relatively wealthy, upper-middle-class white family. He had an older brother and a younger sister who he was very close to. Despite this, when his parents divorced, it seemed like with their dad, all the money went. He was the primary breadwinner, and it seems like his family was the wealthier side. And how it was described in John Carlin's book, Chase Your Shadow, essentially he kind of shirked his financial responsibilities is how they put it. And people even went as far to say that Oscar was estranged from his father for that reason. So that left his mother, Sheila, to raise three kids. And I don't think that she had been working previous to her husband leaving her So this was very difficult indeed. They did struggle to make ends meet. Oscar loved and worshipped his mother. He would definitely credit her with giving him strength and teaching him to look beyond his disability. She used to say to journalists that she treated Oscar exactly the same as she treated her other kids. It was almost like a joke. Like it's like, Get your shoes on. Get your legs on. We got to get out the door. Yep. Like it was just like no different to her. That's so awesome though. Yes. It's very complicated. And we'll get into, I think we can get into it right now, that everything that was great about Oscar, he credited his mother for, like about how you overcome and how you, essentially she taught him that other people regard you as you regard yourself. So if he never looked at himself as disabled, other people wouldn't see him being disabled either. But this also created a situation where it seems like Oscar never really, he was kind of taught to consider himself separate from other people who had disabilities or other people who had different challenges or were differently abled in some way. Like, that he was, like, refusing and almost, like, in denial about it because his mom was. And it created its own issues because it's kind of like the whole, like, you know, when we're talking about racism, how I don't see color is actually a problematic statement. Yes, yeah. How that it's really important to acknowledge racism. It's really important to acknowledge that the things that Oscar is going to have to go through, the challenges he's going to face, are not, like, the challenges that able-bodied people are going to face. Some of them will be the same because we're all the same in some ways. But other challenges are going to be far greater. And when you don't acknowledge that, then it can actually create a lot of issues for the person who you're trying to help. She's trying to like pump her son up. But instead, I think it gave him a lot of anxiety about having to always be on, always be pretending that everything was okay, working harder than everyone else. Rather than just acknowledging that, yes, sometimes things aren't fair and you are just as worthy and just as smart and just as great, if not better, because of what you've been through. But it also doesn't mean that you haven't had different experiences that people should understand. And so John Carlin wrote in his book, Sheila's refusal to let her son's disability hold him back physically or mentally was the engine behind his remarkable triumphs on the running track. What she failed to foresee was that by hiding the truth from himself and others, he might gain in self-image in the short term, but might lose out by failing to face up to the truth of his disabled body, hampering his capacity to develop as an emotionally healthy human being. It sometimes meant pushing himself harder than he really wanted to. It meant smiling and looking strong when inside he felt sad or weak. His success in concealing his vulnerabilities from others built up the outer layers of his self-esteem but he paid a price in the terms of the turmoil generated by the impossibility of reconciling the person he wished to be with the one he was. The striving always to be regarded as able-bodied at peace with his disability contained an element of self-delusion which caused him anxiety and stress.
0: I mean, there's also, I don't know if his mom spoke outwardly about how she raised them the same. Like, was that something that she spoke about? Because it could have also been a survival mechanism for her to, you yeah. know?
1: Well, no, she used to tell that story about, like, the legs, the shoes.
0: She would tell that story to journalists herself. Yeah, but, like, it could have just been that she was taking care of three kids on her own and she, like, needed to treat them the same in order to, like...
1: Yeah, well, to keep... That's absolutely true. And then I think that also John Carlin brings up that every mother feels a responsibility to her child and to deliver them into the world safely. and that. It was also stemming from her own denial that there was anything wrong with her baby, basically. So it's like she might have had some misgivings about somehow like she did something wrong, even though that had nothing to do with it. It's a very rare congenital disorder, I believe, and had nothing to do with whatever she did or did not do.
0: But it's still as a mom, you obviously feel like it's your fault.
1: Yes. You internalize these things. And so... By proving that her son could do anything that her able-bodied children could do, I think what was also for her helped her feel like she was doing the best she could for him. Exactly. And also, I can't even imagine having three children and trying to make ends meet and everything, like you said, that what she was trying to do. And to that end, she didn't even consider putting him in a school where he would be in a specific place that was more accessible for him and he was around other children who were physically challenged in any way and said she was like, you're going to the best that we can afford, the best prep school, boarding school in the nation. So where he went was actually very well known. And the headmaster even recalled that he sat down with Oscar and his mother, Sheila, and said, Oscar's... Incredible, but we don't really know if we can accommodate him. We don't know if the facility and the school itself and where he's going to be staying is going to be appropriate for him. And we just want to let you know that. And she was like, he'll be fine. (laughs) So it's like, it's a rough, it's like, it's in the he, by the way, he thinks that she did an amazing job and that she is like a hero. Like she created him, she was the one who raised him, she was the one who gave him a backbone. She was the one who made him so resilient, made him so resilient. So, like, he has absolutely no qualms with how she raised him and inspired him. And, in fact, it was probably the biggest devastation of his life when she passed away when he was only 15 years old. Stop. He was only 15.
0: So he has her on this, like, permanent pedestal too. Permanent
1: pedestal, which is another he never really got the chance to grow up and examine
0: see her as an another adult, another hu- just a human and not his mom.
1: Yeah, who is like legendary. Like he has a tattoo of like I think it's Roman numerals of when she was born and when she died. She looms extremely large in his consciousness and in his vision of self. And it's also really sad too because Nobody ever saw her drinking at all. I think that she went through so much stress trying to do the best and be the best mom in the whole world and take care of these three kids after her husband blindsided her that they said that it turns out she was like a secret drinker. So she would like drink herself to sleep essentially. And this was something that she hid from everyone. She even hid from her own children. As a result, her liver was severely damaged. And by the time she got treatment, they misdiagnosed her with having hepatitis. And it was the treatment for the hepatitis that she did not actually have that killed her.
0: Yeah, because it probably processes through
1: the liver too. I'm sure that was part of it. I don't know, actually know what medically how it happened. But commonly, when people talk about it, they talk about how technically it was a misdiagnosis and the treatment that actually ended her life. So I think there was probably a lot of anger there too, because that felt like something that could have been preventable. Yeah. In any case, Oscar really used his love and memory of his mother, and he was very bonded to his siblings as well to fuel his success in life. And when he was in his teens, he tried to play rugby and He went out and he gave as good as he got on the field, but he realized that he was actually a better runner than rugby player. And unfortunately, the prosthetic legs that he had always had were very old school. They were wooden and they eventually broke. And I think that his school was part of maybe through a scholarship or something, looked into finding him more appropriate prosthetic legs. And they ended up finding this great person who makes prosthetics in South Africa who fitted Oscar with these carbon fiber cheetah blades. What? Yeah, they're like, you've have you ever seen Paralympic runners? Yes. So they have these like, yeah, those blades essentially. Yep. And he got his first set and they were blown away. Like he got on the track and his athleticism, once in a generational talent just like shone through. So much so that he got attention from like the whole Paralympics community. And which is really interesting because I also learned about a lot of people, for some reason, which are, they have nothing to do with each other. I'm not nothing to do, they're all the Olympics, but the Paralympics are very different than the Special Olympics. The Special Olympics are people who have intellectual challenges, versus the Paralympics was actually started, I think, either after World War I or two, I can't remember which for soldiers coming back who had lost legs or other limbs in the war or had other physical challenges and were still extremely athletic and wanted a place to display those talents and still be competitive and be professional athletes. So sad
0: and remarkable.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so he was only 17 years old when he was already getting attention from this community And he ended up traveling to the United States where he worked with a very well-known prosthetic maker and Paralympian named Brian Frazier, which is so incredible to have somebody who is also an amputee working with you as the person making your prosthetic legs because they actually know what it feels like and what you need, and especially if you are going to be on that Paralympic level that you're going to be on a world stage. And this is not your ordinary cheetah blade over here. He was on this podcast I listened to that's called R.O.S. Presents False Idol by journalist Tim Rohan. And he talked about how basically he's like this kid. He's 17 years old and he fits him with these cheetahs and they go out for a run and Oscar just blows him away. And at that time, I think Brian was like the leading gold medalist Paralympian in the 200 or 400 meter. And he said that he was just kind of like, oh, do you think I could go to the Paralympics? And he's like, yeah, seeing as you just beat a gold medalist, I'm pretty sure you could. (laughs) Right away, Oscar was a success. I mean, starting at like 17, 18 years old, he was already an international icon He's very good looking. He's well spoken. He has this incredible story and extraordinary resilience. And he also really did have just this God given athletic talent. He's one of those people that 100% worked hard and like, you know how people make it look easy, but you don't see all the training behind it. And yeah, totally. Everything they have to go through. Like, obviously, like, he was putting in the time and he was outworking people and all of that, too. But he's, like, one of those people that makes it look easy. And there was something there. I mean, there's just people that are, like, Michael Phelps was swimming. There's just people out there that whatever their body situation or their talent, they're just athletically gifted, just like some good singers, you know? Yeah, and he was like that. And he was like that. And so he really became pride of South Africa, like a symbol. Because we're talking about we're coming out of apartheid. There's significant rebuilding after apartheid, even though it had been years and years and years. It's still a country that's struggling to get out of that legacy. Yeah. And this was a hero that black people and white people alike could cheer for. And everyone saw him as a symbol of resilience and growth in the face of adversity. So he became beloved in South Africa, and he was known as the Blade Runner because of his cheetahs. I love that. Yeah, the Blade Runner. Oscar Mania really reached a fever pitch when he ran at the 2012 London Olympic Games. So his goal, and I think this is if you're thinking about his mom, was like he didn't want to just keep winning gold at the Paralympics. He wanted to run in the Olympics against the able-bodied sprinters. And there was like a whole thing about this, guys. If you if There's like a lot of documentaries on Oscar. There's a lot of series. There's so much information available about him. I didn't want to get too bogged down in this. But there was like a whole controversy about whether he was using as much energy as the able-bodied sprinters and basically like, do the cheetahs give you any advantage whatsoever with like the spring? And also like, obviously your gait helps you out. So if you're taller and you have longer legs, you're going to run faster. So how do they know if that's really would be, like would he actually be like six one or six two? I think he was with his prosthetic legs on, or would he have been shorter? Like, so there was all these questions. And at first they said he could not run in the Olympics. And then they changed their mind and they said, yes. And to like the credit of the other sprinters, they were like, this man (laughs) had both of his legs amputated below the knee as an 11 month old baby. I'm okay. I forget who it was, but one of the, the guys he raced against at London was like, we've got guys out here who are doping. We've got guys out here illegally taking whatever they can, whatever steroids they can to push their advantage. And you're going to make a really big deal about this guy who's a W amputee, a bilateral amputee, really? Yeah, it seems insane. Yeah. And so they decided to let him run at London. And he was really concerned about this. This was a dream of his, of course. But at the same time, he was afraid of looking like some sort of laughing stock. And he did well. He qualified. He beat people. But then when he, it came to like the actual race, like after surviving qualifying rounds, he did end up getting last but everybody was so psyched. Like he got more cheers than you're less out of the best in the world. Exactly. And so it was, everyone said that it was just like such a huge achievement and that the entire world stage was cheering for him and clapping for him. I mean, he went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He was, I think at this point in 2012 and during London, he had over two or three million dollars of sponsorships, like Nike sponsored him, Oakley, a company that made the blades. And he was really just this golden child. I mean, he was also a good looking guy. So he did some modeling campaigns as well. Um, He modeled for Terry Mugler was like he was like a a face of their South African campaign as well.
0: Ultimately, was he not happy? And and he was disappointed because he felt like he could have done better with the I think it was complicated. I think
1: that there was like relief that he did as well as he did. I think that there was pride that he had accomplished something that had been his dream his whole life and probably was something that was making him think of his mother, of course. And I know that they, like South Africa chose him to carry their flag at the closing ceremonies, even though he hadn't won a gold medal, but because like, the whole world had adopted him and loved him so much. So there was a lot of pride and he was getting so much positive feedback, but there's differing reports about how his his feelings were. Some people said that, yeah, it was really hard on him, that he wanted to, of course, like
0: go out and blow everybody out of the water. It's funny because he probably would have gotten blowback from that. They would have then been like, see, we shouldn't have let him race because he exactly. has an advantage. Like it's a double-edged sword. It's like a triple-edged sword with everything. I think more than anything else too, this was very
1: highly inspirational for anyone who was born or later developed physical challenges or was an amputee, whether it was unilateral or bilateral, meaning one leg or two legs, that there's a lot of people who John Carlin spoke to in his book who were directly affected by Oscar Pistorius and he became mentors to kids he worked with directly in charities. He worked with um, a charity that brought awareness to victims of minefields and people who had lost legs and helped provide prosthetic legs for people afflicted with that type of violence. And I think that being on such a global stage as the Olympics, which obviously gets more attention than the Paralympics, became so inspirational to so many people out there. And in the end, whether he got the gold medal or not, his effect on the world was probably very rewarding, I would imagine. So in November of 2012, when these two meet, Oscar's a lot more famous than Riva because that was the same year he was coming off the Olympics. But she was still modestly famous. And that's how obviously he saw her and kind of went for her. Like I said, they went basically public right away. And Oscar was pretty much referring to Riva as his girlfriend almost right off the bat. Hmm. That's kind of like a red flag because it feels like he would know what the attention was going to be like at this event. And there's even video footage of her being like, oh, I'm his friend, Yeah, we just decided to come together today. Yeah, we
0: just met.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that he was very attracted to Reva. He admits later that he was very keen on her, probably more keen than she was on him. Okay. And I do kind of wonder with, like, having her go to this very public event with him right away if he was kind of, like, forcing the relationship. It seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. And it moved very quickly. From there, they at some point, I think she was basically staying at his place. Other accounts say that they were living together. We know that he referred to her as like his fiance at one point and they'd only been together for three months. Reva told her mother mid-December that she was very impressed with Oscar's charity work. They had very similar interests in that field. It seems like they were very united in wanting to affect good change for especially the people of South Africa, and for him, for other people who were amputees, of course, or had any sort of physical challenges. But beyond that, they also really liked animals, racehorses. They both had a love of fast cars. I guess that the friend who had introduced them had like some sort of sports car dealership. Okay. And obviously she loved racehorses. I guess Oscar owned some racehorses. He owned two dogs as well. On the very shiny surface, they were a very beautiful couple. They were young and talented. Oscar was 26 to Riva's 29. They were socially conscious. But Riva's close friends and family remained slightly skeptical because this is all moving so fast. Riva was a smart, opinionated person who had overnight become just Oscar Pistorius' girlfriend. Those who knew her thought that she deserved to be considered much more than just like oh, that model girlfriend of Oscar Pistorius. So there was a little concern that she was going to be... Outshined. Consumed. Yeah, not even outshined. It's just more like it would be hard for her to get out from under that reputation that even if they broke up for the rest of her life, she'd be like, her Wikipedia page is like, Oscar Pistorius' ex-girlfriend. Like, even if they did break up, it's like the only thing she would be known for when she had this plan of wanting to do great things for the world. Yeah, her own... Plans. Yes, her own plans that she'd already been doing and working on and setting in motion. It also seemed like Oscar could be a little controlling. Reva had spent every Christmas in all of her 29 years with her parents until this Christmas with Oscar. And she had just met him in November. And already she's saying, I'm not coming home for Christmas or New Year when she always did. So her mother June obviously was a little concerned about that and then she was pissed off later when she found out that Oscar had actually left her alone on Christmas Day. So he like got her to stay with him for Christmas and then said, "Oh, I forgot I have to go to this bachelor party" and like fucked off and went out with his friends. Not cool. Very not cool. And they thought it was a little controlling of the behavior to be determining that early in the relationship where she was going to be spending the holidays when he is not even Doing something that's like a big family event or anything like that. I guess that there was also a PR person who was friendly with June because they knew each other through Reva. And she did call June after she had been working a red carpet event that Reva and Oscar were at together and said that it was exciting, obviously, to see Reva being thrust into the spotlight even more so than she had been before. But she wanted June to be a little wary because Oscar seemed very possessive. Wow, really? Yeah. Recovered text messages between the couple show lots of gushing texts of love and pet names, and they obviously seemed very smitten with one another. But there were also just a small handful of messages where Riva seemed very upset with Oscar for jealous behavior where there was occasions where he would accuse her of flirting with other men while they were at an event. There was one case where he left a party while she was trying to leave, but she was literally like talking to somebody on the red carpet and he didn't think she was moving fast enough or she was like had been flirting with somebody or something. So he just took off and left her and it was very embarrassing for her. And so there are some text messages where she's saying it really hurts me when you behave like this. And sometimes when you snap at me, I'm scared. Okay. So we're getting this view of this relationship that should still be in its honeymoon period. And there's already these red flags about his behavior. There was like, I guess she was like practicing potentially an American accent or something. I think her mom said, and there was a text message about how she was like using accents, and he like told her to knock it off, and that she was annoying, or that like he snapped at her for like touching his neck one time. So it seems like Oscar is very tightly wound, and the way he's responding to things around their relationship seems not healthy at the most generous and dangerous if you're looking at the red flags on social media. however, all seemed very bright between the couple. there were like a couple vague tweets that Reva had made throughout their relationship where she said, like, I'm doing it again or like, I don't learn my lessons about my heart or something like that. So there's some like vague posts.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like early Facebook emo posts.
1: Yes, exactly. Where you're like in a down mood because you got into a fight. And then there was like one in December where she's like, I'm actually kind of missing my stalker. Where are you? Or something like So there had, like, been some jokes about how he was, like, stalking her and going after her, but then he, like, was pulling away. So there's some vague tweets here and there, but for the most part, when we're rolling into the new year, when we're talking about January, February now of 2013, it looked good. It looked good on social media, as it always does, where she's, like, saying, like, oh, a cozy movie night in, or she's, like, posting, like, Smoothies that he's making her for breakfast and being like most important meal of the day, my boo made this for me or something. So this is all seemingly going well. And she is getting a lot of attention and followers for being associated with Oscar Pistorius because he was extremely famous at this point. And she's still trying to use her platform, which is now growing, to address especially gender-based violence in South Africa. So she actually had a speech planned that she was going to do on Valentine's Day for a girls' school about domestic violence and abuse within romantic relationships and how it's really important to talk to girls in their teens when they're starting out about red flags and what to avoid and how not to lose yourself in these types of relationships. So she was already setting up speeches. She was doing talks. And on February 9th, she tweeted, quote, I woke up in a happy, safe home this morning. Not everyone did. Speak out against the rape of individuals in South Africa. Rip Anine Boyson. This is a serious trigger warning for what happened to Anine Boyson and her case. It's very violent and it's very disturbing. Seventeen-year-old Anine was being walked home. I think she had been at some sort of restaurant or bar or nightclub situation with a man that she thought she knew and was romantically interested in. It seems like, potentially, there was some interest there on her part, but she trusted this guy and she knew him and she, he was walking her home so she was safe and instead he and his friends gang raped her and that wasn't the end of it. After they did that, they disemboweled her. <laughs> So Anine was found by a security guard, and she managed to live long enough to identify her attackers. Wow. There was a big outcry about this in South Africa. Thank goodness. This really did actually move the needle a little bit because it was such a horrific crime.
0: Yep. And the fact that she
1: lived. Well, she didn't survive. She lived long enough, and then unfortunately, she passed away from her injuries, but she was able to identify her attackers. and at least one of them was brought to justice. But I know that the the president spoke out at this point and it was a big rallying cry for women's groups and uh, groups that were against gender-based violence in South Africa at this point. And it was just so atrocious that Reva, when she was planning on making this speech, she decided she was like retooling her speech because this happened on February 9th and she was supposed to speak, I think, to the Girls school on Valentine's Day on February 14th and so she was figuring out how to give this speech in memory of Anine and I guess the speech was in honor of the Black Friday campaign for rape awareness but unfortunately Riva would never get a chance to make that speech and she and Anine would be tied together in public consciousness forever and not because she gave a beautiful speech honoring Anine's life, but instead because in the early morning hours of the day she was supposed to deliver that speech, Reva Steenkamp was shot to death. So wild. Whether your resolution is to save money, eat better, or stress less, HelloFresh is here to help you do all three. Say hello to your most delicious year yet with fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes at a price you'll like, delivered right to your door.
0: Seriously, every year when resolution time comes around, I find my goals aren't some big, crazy, ambitious thing. It's just about doing life a little bit better. And I think HelloFresh helps with that in so many ways. Exactly. Each HelloFresh
1: box is packed with farm-fresh ingredients, And everything arrives pre-portioned right to your doorstep for less hassle and less wasted food.
0: Yep, and with HelloFresh, you'll never face recipe boredom as well. Dig into their biggest menu yet with over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly and even more market add-on items that suit any lifestyle. For us, easily the most valuable part is that they're actually designed for a
1: super busy lifestyle. Their quick and easy meal lineup includes their 15-minute recipes, which are designed to minimize mealtime stress. This has been such a helper for me. I was just telling Andy about how when I was growing up, my dad always made these incredible meals every night. And I've had so much mom guilt and stress about not being able to do a similar thing for my kids. And now HelloFresh has given me the ability to do that in 15 minutes. And it turns out that the kids actually love the recipes,
0: so I've never been happier. And they have so many great options for different dietary restrictions, and it's made it really easy for our vegan household to find something that works for everyone. And honestly, they've all been delicious. So
1: it's fast, convenient, and can actually
0: work with a lot of different types of eaters, which sounds like a win to me. Go to hellofresh.com lovemurderfree and use code lovemurderfree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash lovemurderfree with code lovemurderfree. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Between 3.12 and 3.14 in
1: the morning on Valentine's Day 2013, neighbors heard four gunshots ring out. These would prove to be the gunshots that were fired by Oscar Pistorius they were shot through the door of a toilet cubicle. So essentially Oscar had a very big, nice house within a gated community. I think it was like an apartment, luxury condominium type thing. And his bathroom was large enough and it had one of those, you know how like when you're staying at a really nice hotel, they have like the toilet has its own room. Yep. Like it has its own door essentially. And so she was in the toilet cubicle with the door shut and locked and Oscar Pistorius, and no one is denying this fact, shot his 9 millimeter through the door four times and killed Riva Steenkamp.
0: Okay.
1: At 3.19 in the morning, so some people say it was like two minutes after, at most maybe five to seven minutes after Riva was shot, Oscar called his neighbor, who was also the manager of this... Gating community he lived in and was already hysterical and said that he had shot Riva because he believed that she was an intruder. In the toilet cubicle. In the toilet cubicle. That's what he says. He said she was in the bathroom. I thought there was an intruder in the bathroom. I didn't know it was Riva. I shouted for Riva to call the police and I fired on the intruder and only. Afterwards, I realized that Reva was not in bed and I broke down the door with a cricket bat and realized it was Reva. And then he immediately called for help. He hung up after talking to the manager. He then called emergency services and this estate where he's living, the estate's security guards. Emergency services told him to not wait for an ambulance if there was any chance that she was still alive and to try to rush her to the hospital himself. So, witnesses found Oscar crying and trying to bring her down these marble stairs out the door. He was covered with blood, he was holding her. And one of his neighbors was actually a doctor. And this neighbor had heard the gunshots and the commotion and come out and found Oscar and Riva, And he could tell immediately that Reva had likely instantly died after being shot paramedics came to the same conclusion when they arrived on the scene.
0: And that seems like it would be really close range, too, because it's not like the toilet cubicle is large. No. I mean, there's nowhere to
1: hide. There's nowhere to get away from somebody in a toilet cubicle.
0: Yeah, you're
1: trapped. Yes. So paramedics and later the, the autopsy would say that it might have been possible for Riva to have survived. Had Oscar had regular bullets in his gun because obviously shooting through a door, the door would maybe slow down the bullet enough that she could have survived. I'm thinking of that teacher that a six-year-old boy shot, remember? And she put her hand out. It went straight through her hand, but it had managed to slow the bullet down just with her hand that by the time it hit her heart, it didn't completely kill her and she survived. So what kind of bullets did he have? He was using something that they called dum dum, or I also heard them referred to as mushroom bullets, which basically, instead of just passing through their target, they expand and
0: explode upon impact. Why would you have those in your gun? I personally do not know.
1: Now, Oscar was a big firearms enthusiast, let's say. And as such, though, he was very well-trained, and he often went to firing ranges in fact there was a new york times write up about him in which the author of the piece went to a firing range with him and oscar told him and his previous girlfriend samantha how to shoot guns so this is a man who is very highly trained he knows what he's doing with a gun he's saying this was mistaken identity it was a mistake this is a man who knows his way around a gun for sure yeah so everyone who was around oscar in this moment, said that he was hysterical. He was sick to his stomach when they took him to jail because he was not denying that he killed her. He couldn't eat. He got very upset when somebody suggested that he eats like a sandwich or something. He was like, how could I ever eat it in a time like this? He was saying things like, I killed my love. Like, may God take me or I wish God should take me instead or something like he was seemed very upset, obviously. And this basically is his statement. So this is what the statement that's eventually collected by the authorities and also officially in his affidavit about what he says happened here. By about 10 p.m. on February 13th, 2013, we were in our bedroom. She was doing her yoga exercises and I was in bed watching television. My prosthetic legs were off. After Riva finished her yoga exercises, she got into bed and we both fell asleep. We were deeply in love and I could not have been happier. I am acutely aware of violent crime being committed by intruders entering the home with a view to commit crime, including violent crime. I have received death threats before. I have also been a victim of violence and of burglaries before. For that reason, I kept my firearm, a nine millimeter parabellum, underneath my bed when I went to bed at night. He said he woke up in the early hours of February 14th, remembered that he had left a fan outside on the balcony next to his bedroom and went to fetch it walking on his stumps. On closing the sliding doors behind him, he heard movement in the bathroom down a corridor from the bedroom. I felt a sense of terror rushing over me. There are no burglar bars across the bathroom window and I knew that contractors who worked at my house had left the ladders outside. Although I did not have my prosthetic legs on, I have mobility on my stumps. I believed that somebody had entered my house. I was too scared to switch on a light. I grabbed my nine millimeter pistol from underneath my bed. On my way to the bathroom, I screamed for him or them to get out of my house and for Riva to phone the police. I fired shots at the toilet door and shouted to Riva to phone the police again. She did not respond, and I moved backwards out of the bathroom, keeping my eyes on the bathroom entrance. It was pitch dark in the bedroom, and I thought Riva was in bed. When I reached the bed, I realized Riva was not in bed. That is when it dawned on me that it could have been Riva who was in the toilet.
0: Yeah, no kidding. If I hear something in the middle of the night coming from the bathroom, I'm going to assume it's my husband. Not an intruder. No, but obviously I don't know what it's like to be scared all the time about an intruder. But I would absolutely 100% make sure that it wasn't the person sleeping next to me.
1: You would at least check to make sure they were really in bed. Because honestly, if Oscar Pistorius was as protective as he claims, because later he claims that he was trying to protect Riva. The first thing I would do if there was an intruder in my house is make sure my children were okay and get them to a hiding place and make sure that they're safe where you know where they are. Or like if I had a firearm, I would make sure certainly that they were safe and I was not going to accidentally fire it on them. If you are protective of a person or a thing, you are going to make sure that person or thing is safe before you start shooting. Yes. I mean, this is really what made people suspect Oscar story of like, this defies common sense, essentially. And this was a case that was compared a lot to the O.J. Simpson trial because we have the celebrity angle of famous sports superstar, a beautiful blonde victim. This is a racially charged environment, which does factor into the defense a little, which we'll talk about, even though both victim and perpetrator are white in this case. There's also police misconduct. It turns out that the lead detective later admitted to several procedural errors, like as far as contaminating the crime scene. He also told some straight up mistruths, like when he was working with prosecutors. For instance, he said that he found like needles and steroids in Oscar's house, which was not true. It was some sort of herbal remedy. And then they also found out that the lead detective himself was facing charges of attempted murder. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he had basically been with, like, two other guys who had fired at a taxi that had a group of seven people in it after an argument. And I think those people all survived, but still. So this guy should not have been working, obviously. And he was replaced, but this was a hot mess, obviously. And it became a huge media circus. So the new detective found reasons, though, to charge Oscar with intentional homicide. Reva was discovered with her cell phone behind the locked bathroom cubicle. And I read some accounts, too, that it looked like she had been trying to pack a bag, like there was some clothes on the ground and a bag was out, like she was like hurriedly trying to put her clothes in the bag. And there were a couple, like some couple, a couple that was close by in the neighborhood that did hear a man and a woman arguing that was from the general area where Oscar's home was. So the authorities formed the theory that Reva and Oscar had been arguing that there had actually been no time that they had actually gone to sleep. And her mom also talks about this in her book about how she saw the security footage of her walking into, because I guess she comes home first and then Oscar comes home. But it looked like they had already been fighting and they're of course they're coming into the home at separate times. And Reva did smile for the security guard when she's let in, but her face is wrecked and like sad up until she like smiles for the security guard. And then as a parent, she's watching this and then as soon as she passes through, her face drops again. Like she was just like performing and being nice for somebody. And so they think that they never went to bed, that they had been fighting for most of the night. It also turns out that There's no text messages or any other signs that would say that Oscar was mad about this. But we do know that with his permission, she had gotten a coffee, I think, with one of her ex-boyfriends that day. So there's theories about, like, did it come up somehow? We know he is possessive. We know he seems a little controlling. Whatever there was, there was some argument. The neighbors hear the argument it seems like it would make sense that she would get scared. Either he's advancing on her or he already has the gun. And she takes her phone and runs to the bathroom and locks the door. She has her phone with her to call for help, but she doesn't get the opportunity. So scary. It's very, very scary. So this was the state's theory about what really happened, which is all based on circumstantial evidence, but does make more practical sense if you're looking at Oscar's story versus what the prosecution believed and the authorities believe happened. I also recall that Oscar had dogs. I think they were pit And nobody recalls the dogs barking or being alarmed. Yeah, from an intruder. From an intruder. And there's a lot of... Alarms in this place. There's like security detail. There's this is a very upscale area. And that's not to say that violence doesn't happen in upscale areas. Of course, it it can happen anywhere. And it's very common in South Africa. So it's not like just because you're in a wealthy area and you have round the clock security, you're totally golden. However, with all these things combined, it just seems crazy. And somebody else also talked about, I can't remember if it was on the podcast, but how it seemed crazy that he would like, go to the balcony and check the fans. And then he also had to come back because he kept his gun under the bed. So he'd have to come back to the bed now thinking that there's an intruder in the bathroom. So a couple times he would have run back to the bed and said, "Riva, Riva, wake up. Yeah, and she's not there. And she's not there. So he's getting the gun and he's not checking to be like, I think somebody's in the house. You don't tell your partner that. You don't wake them up and warn them. And then also somebody on False Idol, the podcast said also, even if he, even if he was right, let's say, even if somehow an intruder came in and locked himself in the toilet cubicle, which did not have a window. So the, I think the window was in the bathroom. Yes, there's a window in the bathroom, but like had gotten in the house and then somehow locked himself in to the toilet cubicle. They were saying that you're still not allowed to kill that person. Like that person's behind a locked door and you have a gun pointed at them. At that point, you call the police and you say, I think somebody's in my bathroom. I will keep them at gunpoint until you get here. You still do not have the right if they are not advancing upon you or if they are not coming to take your life or put you in danger. You don't have the right to just kill them through a closed door.
0: Yeah. Even if it was an intruder.
1: Even if it was an intruder, you can't just shoot them nilly-willy. They have to be, like, coming at you. You have to have evidence that this was really self-defense. And if they're not even having the opportunity to speak, because if they had, he would have recognized Riva's voice if we're following his story, then clearly he didn't give whoever was in the bathroom a chance to say, hey, don't shoot. So that is problematic in and of itself. So let's say even if he didn't think he was shooting Reva, which I don't necessarily believe, I think he knew who he was shooting, it's still some type of murder because he still knew a human being was behind that door and he shot anyway without giving them any chance. So this, what I just kind of outlined was basically the prosecution's argument when they went to trial in fall of 2014. They included the Evidence of the text messages where Reva said she was scared of Oscar, where she detailed these periods where he seemed controlling or possessive or snappish. They also included an ex-girlfriend's testimony that Oscar was verbally abusive and had once when they were in a fight, or I think he was like mad because he had gotten pulled over for speeding, which he did quite frequently. He was known to go in excess of like 180 miles per hour, like crazy. The New York Times article who profiled him said that he was like crazy driver and would like drive right up behind people, like in a very uncomfortable way. And so this ex-girlfriend, Samantha, who started dating him when she was only like 17, I think she's 17 and he was like 24, said that he was very controlling, he was verbally abusive and that one time he was like angry with her or he was like angry that he had been pulled over, whatever way he was in a bad mood. And he opened the sunroof of the car and while he's driving, he shot his gun out of it, like in a threatening manner. Oh my God. Yeah. Obviously his defense claimed that Riva's death was simply a tragic mistake. They claimed that Oscar had long had anxiety and was particularly terrified of home invasions. And I do think that this is documented. I think he talked to the New York Times journalist about this and maybe others. The defense claimed that this fear had originated with his own mother who had also slept with a gun in order to protect herself and her three children as a single mother in South Africa. So he worships his mother and this was what she did. And she maybe had given him this feeling or this anxiety or it was just he had anxiety. Yep, But his anxiety was particularly profound around the fear of home invasions and especially when he was sleeping because
0: he was not wearing his prosthetic legs. Yeah, so he's like starting out at a disadvantage if someone did come in.
1: Yes, because he doesn't have quite the same balance or mobility. He can technically walk on his stumps, but not to the same dexterity. He also would go from being over six feet tall with his blades on to
0: only 5'2". Yeah, it's, of course, it must feel so different. I can't imagine.
1: He was a mess at the trial. He had to be excused. Like, he was vomiting. He was crying. It was like a whole scene. And they also, to prove the point, because he had long been considered this god, this sports god, For so long, they had him take off his prosthetic legs and stand before the court to, like, prove the point that he was a different person or something without his legs on and show his vulnerability. And he he was only 5'2 without them. And even June, Riva's mom said that there is, like, this—I mean, it feels weird. It feels just, like, off, like, to do this in general. But I, like, I can guess why the defense found it necessary. But June said it was very, like, jarring to see him look so small. Yeah. And he's standing there and he was, like, still really upset. So he looks sad. He looks pathetic in that moment, like, because he's so defeated and he's on trial for the murder of the woman he's claimed to have loved. So the defense pretty much just doubled down on this essentially mixture of anxiety, his upbringing. His need for control, his need for dominance, his need to overcome the vulnerability of his disability, as well as the well-established crime rate and occurrence of home invasions in South Africa, basically had just all come together in this maelstrom to cause Oscar to make this horrible, tragic mistake, is what the defense is saying.
0: And what's he trying to get out of his defense? Like, what is he at risk of being?
1: So they could find him guilty of intentional homicide, that it was essentially first degree murder. They could reject this whole premise and say it was not an accident and that he killed Riva with intention. Maybe this is just a story. And he's trying to argue that. he's trying to say it absolutely was not that. And then he could also be charged with what they call culpable homicide, which is more like our manslaughter, meaning it wasn't intentional, but it still happened. And you are responsible because there was ways in which you were negligent that contributed to the death. This wasn't like there was icy conditions and
0: your car spiraled,
1: yeah, spiraled out and you ended up hitting a pedestrian and they died because that there was like, you couldn't have done anything about that, right? This was that you, even if he didn't know it was Riva behind that door, he still did not make the steps to, as a responsible gun owner, make sure that there was not a human being behind the door when he started firing. So you're still responsible in some legal capacity for the death, yeah. Yeah, there's actually a, a word for this too. There's like a legal argument dolus eventualis which is essentially i think saying that basically like if you like he must have known he was likely to kill a person and that you have to like you have to like argue about whether they knew there was a risk of taking a life so did he reasonably believe that he could potentially take a life when he shot those bullets and the answer is has to be yes because he's saying I thought there was an intruder, and he's still saying he shot the gun, right? So he has to be at least guilty of something in this case. But they were even saying that's still intentional homicide because you knew there was a human. It doesn't matter whether it was Reva or not. There was a human on the other side of that, and you intentionally killed that human. And it ended up being Reva, even in the best version of this.
0: Yeah, it's so horrifying.
1: Yeah. So Oscar's attorneys also argued that out of like thousands of messages, there was only like four or five messages that they really cherry picked to talk about Reva being uncomfortable or being scared and that the rest of the hundreds or thousands were all loving and showed tenderness. And even that night, like she had texted him like that evening saying something like you're an amazing person. And so it was not fair to just highlight these like four out of a thousand messages.
0: Yeah, but that's what they're going to do.
1: Yeah, of course they are. And they also established on cross that the neighbors who had heard the fighting had heard fighting, but they of course could not say for sure whether it was Riva and Oscar. Like they didn't hear them say Riva or Oscar, and they could not generally say that it was exactly coming from their window. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and is is basically what they're arguing. Now, the defense did draw some criticism in that they felt like they were using or politicizing the idea of the threat of black violence, basically being like, oh, it's so dangerous. And of course he was, scared because home invasions are everywhere. And it's like coded to mean that it's black people who are doing these invasions. It's black criminals. And that this was a common political tactic used by white supremacists during apartheid. And I believe afterwards to basically like stoke white fear to stay in control by essentially saying if you dismantle the white power structure, then there'll be no one left to save you from black violence. And Some scholars believe that this defense of being like, oh, poor little Oscar Pistorius, of course he was terrified of what's out there getting in. And it makes sense because white people have to be scared in South Africa. So that was one criticism of the defense beyond just like, this is kind of an unreasonable theory. That is also discussed more at length on the podcast False Idol. Well, John Carlin, the author, does not get too deep in that. He's like more of a... The book was called, I didn't want to tell you guys right away, but Chaser's Shadow, The Trials of Oscar Pistorius. He definitely seems like more interested in being on Oscar's side. So that's why like after I read this one, I was like, mm, I'm going to need some more sources. Yeah, interesting. Versus like False Idol is like Oscar Pistorius is a shit bag like right away. <laughs> it like basically has like other guys on who like raced against him being like he wasn't really sportsman like and he's kind of a dick and like he wasn't as great as everyone's saying. Meanwhile, John Carlin's book is like children talking about how like he meant so much to them and like how he helped them
0: like get prosthetics and stuff like that. But that's why it's such a sensationalized case.
1: Yes. But it's also important to take in all of this information because there's still people that really like believe that this was based on his mental state and his upbringing and when he didn't have his prosthetic legs on. And we can't really understand what that feels like. Like you can't put yourself into that situation. And there is a really bad crime rate. It's like, that's not something we can look past. That is possible. And then there's other people that are like, are you kidding me? Like, listen to what he's saying. Listen. Like, no reasonable person
0: would do those things. I know. And I'm not on his side at all. But like, if he actually does have severe mental illness to the point to where his anxiety is affecting the way he's functioning as a normal human being, like, that could be... Yeah,
1: it's something that you have to take into account. Yes. Now, there was also conflicting reports, and this always happens with, like, expert witnesses. Like, the state has a a witness that says he was absolutely, like, his anxiety was not affecting his ability to make decisions that night. And then, of
0: course, the defense says that it was. Well, yeah, and also, if your anxiety is that intense, you should not be a gun owner.
1: I mean, there's also, I think we've talked about it before, because it's something that Marcus Parks says, which is, like, if you have mental illness, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to manage it. It's his responsibility to have an understanding of his anxiety and figure out, like, how to make sure that outcomes like this do not happen when he's in that state of mind, which obviously he did not do because there is no evidence that he was in any sort of treatment at the time of the murder. Yeah. It's very complicated. So let's get into the verdict. Now, in South Africa, they do not have a jury system. So it is up to the judge. And this judge, Judge Masipa, she is very well respected. She was only the second Black woman to ever be appointed in a high court in South Africa. Wow. And she was known as a very competent judge and could be very harsh on offenders. So this is not a situation where he has like a white male judge. This is somebody who is... Everyone thought from the outside, going to look at this very fairly and not be swayed by his celebrity in any way, which I think is
0: good and important. Yes, absolutely.
1: And basically, it sounds like how this all rolls out is that the judge spends days, weeks, coming to her own conclusions and then preparing a statement. And she actually spent two days breaking down all of the evidence and why it felt believable or legal, really, because that's what she has to say. Like, legally, this has a standing or it doesn't. And then she gave her verdict. And so she gave a statement about how she reached this verdict and said that the witnesses who heard arguing did not matter. That's just circumstantial. They can't say that it was them. So unless somebody was in the room with them and saw them arguing, like, that doesn't really matter. She also threw out the text messages saying that these text messages don't necessarily mean anything because she said, quote, normal relationships are dynamic and unpredictable sometimes. Though she admitted that Oscar made a poor witness and had not served himself because he got on the stand and he's upset and he's crying and, and he's, he seems like he's not being generally trustworthy. There's something like he seems like maybe he's lying. She said that he wasn't a great witness, but that really is, it's kind of neither here nor there. She said that basically, in the end, she felt like the state had not proven their case of intentional murder beyond a reasonable doubt. And therefore, Oscar Pistorius was acquitted of intentional homicide. However, she said that the explanation of the conduct of the accused does not excuse the conduct, which was clearly negligent, so she found him guilty of culpable homicide, which is like our manslaughter, and it carries a significantly shorter sentence. Ultimately, he was sentenced to serving a maximum, maximum of five years in prison. Wow. Yes. Now, this was a very unpopular decision, to say the least. Most, I think, also coming off of what had happened to Anine Boyson, and only days later, this is happening to Riva there was a lot of outrage about gender-based violence going on in South Africa at this time. And actually, a lot of South Africans were taking this harder, like, were harder on Oscar than the general world was because of what was going on in the country. And it got so bad that Judge Masipa actually got death threats regarding this verdict. And some people said, too, because she had very, very advanced and severe arthritis, Judge Masipa herself, and she walked with a noticeable limp. A lot of people speculated that maybe she was swayed by the fact that they both had physical challenges. She could put herself more in his headspace. But she has, of course, denied that this was at all personal for her in any way. So Oscar ended up being paroled basically one year later, October 2015. Holy shit. Yeah, but this is not the end of the story. In South Africa, the state is also allowed to appeal. Like in our system, if you are convicted, you can appeal. But generally, I don't think the prosecution can appeal when they lose. It just, it's done. But in South Africa, they can. So the state appealed the verdict and the sentencing. And they appealed because they believed that the judge had misinterpreted the law when she cleared Oscar of murder on the basis that he did not intentionally shoot Riva, essentially saying that she didn't apply the rule of dolus eventualis that we were kind of talking about. Maybe it was not Riva, but he certainly was intentionally killing a human. And that's intentional murder. He knew there was a human beyond the door and he's still shot knowing that reasonably he could assume that they were going to die. Mm-hmm. That's an a reasonable assumption. Knowing this weapon, how close he is, And he knew what kind of ammunition he had in that barrel. A panel of five judges in December of 2015, so he had only been out for a couple weeks, unanimously decided that Oscar was guilty of murder given the high-caliber weapon, the ammunition inside, his firearms training, so he would have had an awareness that this could kill someone. He should have been aware that whoever was on the other side of the door had a very likely chance of dying. And Oscar was resentenced to a total of 15 years maximum, including the time he had already served, with his earliest parole date being that of March 2023. The first parole application was denied. Okay. However, earlier this month, after serving nine years in prison, Oscar Pistorius was released on parole. So he's out now. And that was what I was getting into with current affairs. When I saw the news... I was like, this would be a good case for current affairs. Then I realized that there's a lot going on here and it was worthy of a full episode.
0: I think it definitely was. I think that was an important full episode. Yeah. I mean, nine years is a short time
1: and I'm going to get to Reva, but I do think that there is some measure of justice in what he has lost. He has probably lost more than just your average run-of-the-mill guy out there. He lost his career. His purpose. I don't know if he was stripped of like his medals, but likely he was stripped of all of his endorsements. I mean, he was stripped of being a hero, stripped of honor. Like, he will be known now forever as a convicted murderer. Like, it's like his Wikipedia is gonna be like Paralympian, Olympian convicted murderer. And that will always be on him and overshadow any accomplishments that he has ever made or done for the good or for the bad. Hence the podcast name of the other full-length podcast, False Idol. But I did find that even with the podcasts or the books or the other than June Camp's book, which is all about her daughter, everything seems to start and end with Oscar. It's all about Oscar. Everyone talks about Oscar first. They talk about all of his accomplishments and everything he went through. They talk about what he lost. They talk about, it's just all Oscar. And I know that Reva really got lost in all of this, just like her loved ones feared when they were just afraid that she would lose her identity and still be alive in the relationship. Yeah. In the relationship. And that's why I really chose to center this episode around Riva and really go into her life and her dreams and her accomplishments. Because pundits and Riva's loved ones alike said that not only is her legacy being Oscar Pistorius' girlfriend and a murder victim now, even in court, they referred to her as the deceased rather than using her name. And it was like she was completely stripped of everything she had been and all of her possibilities, which is just absolutely incredibly tragic, given that I think with her spirit and all of those things that her, like, her teachers said about her and the way she treated people and how she cared and what she wanted to do and how she wanted to create a platform for change I think she could have been like a princess die-like figure in South Africa. They could have both done a lot of amazing things. They could have both done a lot of good. And then that's basically like what June said at the end of her book is that obviously there's so much anger there that Reva didn't get to accomplish, that she didn't get to get married, that she didn't get to have children, that June and Barry didn't get to have grandkids. And she also thinks that the stress of all of this killed Barry early. He died last year at 80, and I guess he did go to the prison and speak to Oscar when he was doing poorly, but he was only frustrated because he said that all he wanted to hear was that it was a mistake, sure, but, like, we had gotten into a fight, or we had, like, I did it, essentially, like, admitting it, and he would not give them that. He kept saying that it was an intruder. It was just a mistake. He loved Riva. It wasn't intentional, and he he never really, like, gave Barry what he was looking for, which was what he felt like would be the truth and a real apology. Yeah. I mean, the fact that she was going to go that very day to deliver a speech. I know. To teenage girls about rape and gender-based violence and abusive relationships and how to avoid them and how to achieve in this patriarchal society is stunning. It is just really a, a tremendous shame. All right, that's the uplifting story today. Sorry, guys, not so much lols in this one. We no didn't lulls. have no lols at all. Not one lol to be seen. So hopefully we will be back in form next week. But I'm glad we covered it because I think well Oscar is out now and making news again all over the world, it's important to keep the focus on what the world lost and who the world lost, which was Reva. In conclusion, this is definitely one of those circumstances where it's, I mean, it's always important, but this is a reminder of why it's important to center these stories around the victims and their lives.
0: Yeah, and in Riva's case, and I'm sure in so many other victims' cases, it's important to keep their mission and dreams alive. Absolutely, 100%.
1: And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.